House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. And uh, so I want to bring in John Farrick. Thank you for being here, John. Thanks for the opportunity to be back on the show again, Alan. Oh, it's always good to have you on. And, and uh, so, so now this book you, you wrote, it's called The Wrecking Crew, and it's uh, demolishing the case against Steve Avery. And, um, and you've, you've had full access with Kathleen Zellner, who's the attorney that's representing Avery, and she's also the one kind of uh, known for... Um, wrongful convictions and getting them overturned. So that's fascinating. What a good setup. Um, and I'm, I'm happy for him. Now, tell us how you got involved with Kathleen Zellner. I was up in, uh, at that point uh, in time, I was up in Wisconsin. Uh, I was working out of Appleton uh, with the, um, the USA Today Network, uh, which is uh, part of the Gannett newspaper uh, family, and uh, and I work on the statewide investigative team. So pretty much every story or project that I was involved in ran was published in all of Gannett's uh, Wisconsin uh, daily newspapers, and they had ten, ten or eleven at that point in time. But because of the magnitude, the interest nationally and internationally in the Steve Avery case. Um, a lot of the stories that I wrote then were also appearing in the USA Today and, and at our other properties throughout the country. I mean, it was not uncommon for me to have, you know, one of my stories on the case in the Indianapolis Star or the Arizona Republic, uh, I mean, some of the other big properties. But, again, it uh, it just kind of fell into play. Um, after Making a Murder came out, there was, as, as, as your listeners may remember, there was a national... Uh, um, um, Unbelievable heightened interest in this case that uh, that people in Wisconsin knew and remembered, but a lot of people around the the country and the world really, for the first time, this was their first taste, their first opportunity to uh, to learn about this case. Um, and so, because of this unbelievable interest in this case, my editor uh, basically gave me permission to you know write as often and as much and extensively. As I wanted about the Steve Avery case, and uh, and he was also very aggressive, and uh, and uh, it basically had no issues, no problems as far as if I wanted to dig into corruption or allegations of a uh, you know wrongdoing, you know, in this case involving uh, some of the police uh, officials that were responsible for the convictions for um, Steve Avery and Brendan Bassey to a degree too. Yeah, that's quite the undertaking, because that was a massive, massive um, media boom. Uh, when when Making a Murderer caught on the first time on Netflix, uh, there were so many groups and so many shows and so much talk, and uh, I, it, it was almost like the election, you know, it was, <laughs> it was phenomenal. Right, and, 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 and I mean, and yeah, so you had uh, a situation where I go into these stories very competitive and and i want to be able to produce the the highest quality as often as possible try to have exclusive stories and give people new information and and worthwhile information 
that they aren't getting from other sources, other news outlets. But at the same token, too, I realize when you have 10, 15, 20, you know, two dozen other legitimate news organizations also fighting for the same story and trying to find a different angle, uh, you're not going to be able to beat every single one of them. But what I realized is it was kind of like... um, it was kind of like a race, um, but this was really a marathon. But at the beginning, it seemed like everybody was in the 100-yard the dash mode. So everybody just kind of you know, ran out of the gate to try to get as many stories as they could about the Stephen Avery case. But after about three weeks, probably half those news organizations stopped covering the case as consistently and religiously as I was covering the case. Um, and after another three more weeks, so you're about six weeks out, um, another half of those kind of moved on or lost interest or didn't didn't have it. Um, and I try to do my best to consistently try to produce at least one in-depth investigative story a week. Sometimes I had several, but uh, but I was trying to make sure that we were providing uh, consistent uh, and regular coverage about the case um, in wake of uh, making a murder coming out and with Kathleen Zellner announcing within about two or three weeks of making a murder coming out that she was going to um, become his... Uh, his lawyer and do it for free. Um, and that was a key point that she wanted to stress that this wasn't something that she was in for, you know, for, for money, uh, quite the opposite. Uh, she was dedicating her, her law firm and her legal services for, uh, you know, for free to try to prove, uh, um, that Stephen Avery was innocent. That must've been quite a surprise, um, for a lot of people like Avery himself, and 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 others, um, it, it was a little bit for me. Um, not that she would do it for free, uh, because she does this sort of thing. She's that type of person. Just that she would take on the case. Um, how do you think that made people feel? Well, I would say that people that that believed in Steve Avery, they they could not have been any happier um given kathleen zellner's track record and uh and uh numerous successes throughout the country uh whether that's the ryan ferguson case in missouri or here in illinois even with the kevin fox case uh which you know has gotten a lot of national attention uh um, to some other uh, wrongful conviction murder cases out of chicago and indiana that she was involved in as well so uh um you couldn't have as far as if you're a supporter, you know, or, or somebody that's, uh, wants to see Steve Avery vindicated and exonerated, you couldn't have the stars align any better, so to speak, Al, um, to then to have Kathleen Zellner, you know, drop in, um, out of nowhere and, and be willing to not just take the case, but to be willing then to put in the time, the effort, you know, and hundreds, if not thousands of hours actually, to try to uh, prove that the um, 2007 trial was all a sham and that the evidence, although it was forensic evidence and uh, on the face, it's damning evidence, but she's been able to work to try to show one piece of evidence by one piece of evidence. Here's why they're false pieces of evidence, and here's how they were manipulated in order to get uh, Steve Avery convicted in 2007. Yeah, she has quite a very, I, I, I like her system, she's very thorough, I like watching her on Making a Murderer too, and um, I like that she's not um, real jumpy at things, like things come across uh, the desk, something comes across, and she analyzes it 
takes her time and then uh, then works it out. It's not like this quick, you know, jump to things. She's very thorough, and I think that's excellent. I mean, uh, I'm, I put, take my hat off to her, but, um, <laughs> you know, I'm mm-hmm. not... A, right. Yeah, so she's fantastic. Now, um, did you? when did you get a chance to meet her? I would say, I'm trying to think, uh, going back in this case, I think probably the first time I... I had an opportunity to probably see her, meet her face-to-face, uh, do those kinds of interviews in person, was probably in the late summer of 2016. And I think, actually, if, for listeners that have watched Part 2 of Making Murder, I think that might be around Episode 4. You'll see a big crowd of journalists, and I'm in there, but uh, but we were all in Manitowoc at the Manitowoc County Courthouse waiting for the, her first Time that she was going to make a major filing in the post-conviction uh, case for Steve Avery. So it was uh, it was August of 2016, and uh, she showed up. Um, it's either Thursday or Friday, but uh, anyway, uh, we were all there at the at the courthouse in Mantock waiting for her. And then um, after she filed uh, about 1,200 pages of uh, post-conviction material, then we all gathered at the top of the steps. Uh, concrete steps at the courthouse there and uh, and uh, did a press conference interview with her and I know I had a chance to ask at least two or three questions questions at that point in time so that was probably my first real face-to-face interaction with her and then over the next what, two two plus years or so then I continued to do a lot of in-depth stories um, analyzing her filing and also um, the case against Steve Avery then I left Gannett and uh, came back to Illinois and um, uh, took a new job in online journalism back in, in my hometown area of Joliet. But uh, but I decided I was going to try to pursue this case as a book just because I thought that at some point in time there, there was enough material here to put together a book that was unique that really hadn't been written about Steve Avery before. And as, you know, as we both know, there's been at least probably I don't know, a half a dozen different books about the Steve Avery case. Most of those books, not all, but most of those books, you know, were written from the standpoint of pro-prosecution, you know, that Steve Avery's guilty, the evidence is there, you know, um, it's an open and shut case. But I wanted to try to put the, put together a book, Al, um, from, a, from a unique perspective, and, and I thought chronicling it from the effort uh, of Kathleen Zellner and her strategy and how she tackles and dissects each piece of evidence one at a time, and how she came up with uh, her various conclusions, I, I decided that that was going to be the best angle that I thought could be worthwhile and informative for people that uh, that may um, be totally immersed with making a murder, as far as that they've watched all the episodes multiple times. Um, they spent a lot of time on Reddit dissecting the, the case files, the police reports, that sort of stuff. But also for the for the novices, people that really aren't that um, don't have the time to do that type of stuff. But uh, but know the case, but are want to learn a lot more. I really wanted this book to be for those kinds of people. That Al. And it's, so so you do take the evidence. It's very evidentiary that people have the evidence and kind of explain to people why uh, Miss Selner doesn't like a piece of evidence and 
what her opinion of it. So you you're kind of giving them a good rundown in the book. Thank you. Um, yeah, I, I, I figured the best approach from the book standpoint was to try to separate as many of those pieces of evidence and kind of give them their due diligence, so to speak. Uh, that way people can really kind of hone in on one piece of evidence in a, in a given chapter and then another piece of evidence in a different chapter and another piece of evidence in a different chapter. Um, whether we like it or not, this particular case against Steve Avery is really about forensic science. Science, And that's what I have to work with. That's what Zellner has to work with. So um, to do that uh, in, in this fashion, I really had to write this book from the standpoint of more analytical, more relying on court documents and filings and briefs than in some of my other books where I probably spent a lot more time just knocking on doors or doing phone interviews with people and stuff like that. This book needed to be as precise as possible because, again, we're dealing with forensic science you know, and scientific evidence here. So, so now, what, what do you find, out of all the evidence you heard, what was the most surprising to you? Like, we've, we've all heard a lot about the different evidence, and, you know, of course, you being on the, on the case and all that sort of stuff and, and following it throughout and writing. Um, was there anything that came up through Kathleen Zellner that just totally blew you away? I would say yes, uh, and it would be the um, two. Um, there were two um, DNA swabs. If, if, if just to refresh our listeners uh, here, after making murder came out, one of the uh, big criticisms from the from the from the Steve Avery's guilty faction and from Ken Kratz, who was pretty much the main um, spokesperson or, or loudmouth. As far as uh, you know, telling everybody that making a murder was terrible and uh, you know and wrong, even though it wasn't. But uh, but he was he was saying, oh, they left out evidence. They left out evidence, and they didn't you know spend enough time in the original making a murder or focus on the fact that Steve Avery's um, DNA was found underneath the hood, the hood latch of uh, of Teresa Hallbuck's vehicle. Well, Zellner spent an inordinate amount of time this time around, trying to figure out how, how Steve Avery's DNA could show up you know, on an item, on a swab of evidence. And it turns out she was able to uncover some really unbelievable, do some unbelievable research on this case, and she basically has been able to determine that in all likelihood, Mark Wiegert from the Calumet County Sheriff's Office and Tom Fassbender at the Wisconsin DCI agent that were the two lead investigators on the case that really were in it uh, to make sure Steve Avery was found guilty and that he was really the only person seriously looked at in the case. Um, but, uh, but it turns out that there were two additional groin swabs that were taken from Steve Avery at the time that he was arrested. Um, and the amount, the, the science, this is where the scientific evidence is really important for the listeners. The, the amount, the quantity of DNA that was found on the so-called DNA uh, swab that was taken from the hood latch was in an incredible amount of times, and I have it in the book, but I, I just can't remember off the top of my head here, L. But just it was an incredible amount, uh, a monstrous amount of DNA was found on these swabs, which basically left Zellner and her scientific experts convinced 
that the swab um, that was taken from the uh, from from the vehicle absolutely could not have been the swab that was uh, um, from Steve Avery. That basically somebody substituted some additional swabs, and in all likelihood, it came from these two groin swabs. And I have experience with this kind of nonsense, you know, in monkey business in the past. Um, this was the same type of behavior. Um, misconduct that happened in, in the case that I wrote my first book on, Bloody Lies, the CSI scandal in the Heartland, with Dave Kofit, the CSI director out of Omaha. He ultimately went to prison for planting evidence um, in high-profile crime cases. Um, but what did him in, what, what the FBI and the special prosecutor were ultimately able to determine and prove, was that he was substituting um, swabs, pieces of evidence uh, um, with, with you know DNA with blood on it, from other swabs that he had he had already collected earlier, and that's the big that's the way that most people plant evidence is that uh, that they already have the evidence collected, and then they just substitute it, you know, for some other piece of evidence, and that's that's how um, that's how the planting and the fabrication of evidence occurs. Then, Al. So, in this particular case, when you say the planting of the evidence and the substitutions, um, what is the main reason that all of that effort to plant evidence went on? Like what, I mean, logically, what was the reasoning behind keeping Steve Avery in jail? Well, I would say at that point in time, at the point in time where, where the so-called DNA evidence on the hood latch occurred, was actually six months after he was arrested. And it was suspicious to begin with because the car, Teresa Halbeck's uh, RAV4, had already been impounded and taken into custody. And it had undergone an extensive analysis by the state of Wisconsin crime lab. And they didn't find any, any additional evidence pointing to Steve Avery from that vehicle, except for the blood in the car. But, um, which was believed to be planted from the get-go and stuff like that. But uh, but the reason why why something like this would occur months later is because the prosecution would be trying to shore up, um, you know, holes in their case and to make sure that they had an ironclad case when they went to trial. So they did have some evidence that they felt, uh, um, you know, was off to a good start. But these were things to solidify the case uh, and, uh, and the follow-up on their arrest that they had just made about a month earlier, of Brendan Dassey, as listeners may recall. Um, and right around that time frame, too, um, Dean Strang and Jerry Buting had come onto the case. Uh, so people sometimes often forget this, but, uh, but Buting and Strang only got involved in the case in February of 2006. Avery was arrested in November of '05. So, again, you're talking almost four months later, and for the prosecution, the fact that Strang and Buting, who were two very good lawyers and had a you know good reputation, the fact that they were now coming on the case as opposed to Avery having public defenders, would have scared the prosecution, you know, and the police uh, um, somewhat uh, because they knew that these were now they were going up against formidable um, defense lawyers. So it's not that surprising, given that context of uh, of the facts, that additional pieces of evidence might be manipulated to even further shore up the case against Avery and or Brenda Dassey. 
Yeah, some of the interesting pieces of evidence, like the the uh, shotgun shell in the garage and how it they um, they're mentioning that it was chapstick, uh, how the chapstick went missing, and and that's how. Um, Teresa Halbach's uh, DNA would have been found on that. Um, now, something like that tends to get a little bit of a um, reaction up. Like that's like that's pushing. It's kind of that's fantasy. Um, what's your thought on that particular piece of evidence? In my mind, that that seems to be another good example. If you look back at it from a chronology standpoint. For whatever reason, you know, the Calumet County Sheriff's Office was, um, I would say, obsessed with obtaining some of these odd items of evidence uh, in the very, very early stages of the case, you know, from Teresa's bedroom and stuff like that. Uh, and if you look back at it now, you know, and make that connection, you could see the possibility that they were trying to obtain items of DNA you know, that at some point, at a later point in time could possibly be used, you know, for, for evidence manipulation purposes. Um, why in the first couple of days she's, she's disappeared? It, it, that's just not common behavior. I can tell you from investigating other, you know, writing about numerous other missing persons cases and homicide cases that, that you would have a person disappearing, you know, on a Monday and, and by Wednesday or Thursday, the police are going through that person's bedroom you know, trying to trying to scoop up as many of their their combs and hairbrushes, and um, you know, lipstick uh, moisturizers, uh, you know, and and that type of material. And even in this case, I mean, believe it or not, it's a fact. I mean, one of the items they also took was was Teresa Halbach's, you know, sexual vibrator. So, I mean, again, these are in the first couple of days of the case. Um, Again, looking back at the case now and knowing the pieces of evidence and knowing a lot of the suspicion about them, you know, one can only wonder if, if these items were being taken and collected, like I said, for the possibility of, of manipulating other pieces of evidence at a later point in time so that they would come back and connect back to Teresa Halbeck as far as uh, being able to tie her to Stephen Avery as, 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 and Brendan Dassey as her killer. Yeah, so, so now on the... Uh the idea of planted evidence um, and the suggestion that uh, you know perhaps the cops were doing it what what do you think the key piece of evidence that sold the jury on convicting Avery is the key piece of evidence yeah. um, well I would say probably uh, one of the major items was probably the uh the bullet fragment that was uh that was uh conveyed to the jury that it contained Teresa Halbeck's DNA on it um, and again that was another one of those very 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 fishy items of evidence because um you know the Mantua County Sheriff's Office had uh, overseen and led the uh, the original searches of Avery's garage, his detached garage over near his red trailer. Um, and they spent uh, two or three days in there during the initial November 2005 search, um, and they really went through that garage meticulously. They, and they find zero evidence, no blood, no, bullet, no bullets, uh, you know, along these lines. Um, 
nothing really that connected um, Mr. Avery to Miss Halbeck's uh, homicide. And so that was kind of over and done with. And it really wasn't until three or four months later, um, um, the uh, the late February, uh, early March uh, um, timing where Brenda Dassey was then pulled into the case and um, and um, um, interviewed and, and uh, you know, pretty much gave that false confession. But uh, but it was around that time that they decided, whoa, let's go back inside the garage. And uh, and it was only during that follow-up search four months later, again, after no evidence was found in the garage when they really tried hard back in November to solve the case. Um, and this time around, this uh, this additional bullet, bullet fragments, I think there was a couple of them, but, uh, but these all of a sudden showed up out of nowhere. And then, uh, and then it was conveyed at a later point in time when the case went to the trial that these bullet fragments had contained Teresa Hallbeck's DNA on them. Um, so I think, I think that those, that was a, that was an important piece of evidence for uh, the prosecution from Mr. Kratz to, uh, to sell the case to the jury. Um, and again, it's just very suspicious, the whole circumstances, as far as you, you try really, really, really hard, you know, when the case is brand new, when it's fresh and, and you find no evidence in the garage. And then all of a sudden, four months later, you decide, well, maybe we missed some stuff in the garage. Um, I mean, they basically gave themselves an opportunity to do like two or three do-overs. And it was just like the same circumstance with, uh, as people remember from Making a Murder Part 1, with Andy Colburn and Jim Link finding the spare key on Avery's bedroom carpet uh, um, during their seventh or eighth search of uh, Stephen Avery's bedroom. Yeah, and that key was clean except for the evidence at the end. It was almost like it had been cleaned off and then, um, you know, evidence be, was placed on it. Because it only, right. it only yeah, had they, Avery's they, hands on it, right? So... Correct. There was zero. Uh, um, there was no fingerprints or any uh, um, trace evidence or DNA, you know, that uh, that put that key in uh, and and showed that uh, you know Teresa Hallbeck had handled that, uh, you know, or used that, uh, you know, in regular fashion and stuff like that. So um, again, it's it's more. It just seems like it's a common theme, Al, that 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 the that the evidence that that convicts Steve Avery at his original trial seems to an outside observer that really doesn't understand who these police officers are, you know, and who these people are that are involved in prosecuting the case, it would seem that these are just uh, um, a really strong pieces of evidence taken, you know, one at a time. But then when you understand, you know, the circumstances of, oh, no, they didn't just go into Avery's bedroom and find this key on the floor. But by the way, this was like the sixth or seventh time that they've been in there. You know, this is a little bedroom that's only a few hundred square feet to begin with. Um, you know, and again, the same way with the garage. They had already been in there several times back when the case was fresh, when nothing, you know, when they're trying to find legitimate evidence and, and they search, you know, inside and out of the garage, you know, and don't find this evidence. And then all of a sudden they decide to go back at a later point in time. And it's almost like they knew, you know, and had this kind of all worked out that uh, that it was going to kind of turn out the way that it was gonna. And we see this on multiple occasions uh, throughout the case. It's just the theme of the case. Now, um, now throughout uh, making a murder or two, as time goes on, um, it's suggested that actually 
uh, Brendan's uh, new new stepfather and brother had um, something to do with it. Had had something to do with the case itself. And um, what what's your thoughts on that? Well, again, and again, this is a good opportunity to remind listeners that one of the most important pieces of evidence at the time of the original murder traced back to uh, to uh, um, the Dassey to the Bobby Dassey uh, household, and that was Teresa's bones. You know, they were found inside of the Dassey burn barrel. Um, in in the Dassey burn barrel, it was at least fifty or sixty yards you know, away from the Stephen Avery property that was their own uh, separate unit um, on the on the premises. So, again, you have Teresa Halbeck's bones being found inside the burn barrel of, uh, you know, that was used by Bobby Dassey um, when he, uh, you know, hunted and dismembered um, deer carcasses. So that's a key point right there that, uh, that sometimes, you know, was either overlooked or, or underplayed, uh, you know, or maybe just kind of, um, you know, really didn't, uh, well, it was an opportunity to go there during the first Making a Murder series. Um, but that's a, that's a key component right there. And then the other parts, so, though, um, are the fact that there was just some b- bizarre behavior by these, by these guys at the time of the, uh, the time of the crime. Um, Bobby's basically the only person in the world, you know, that, um, puts himself in a situation where he is watching and observing, um, possibly stalking, you know, Teresa Halbach, you know, around the time frame that she's going to meet her demise. Um, he claims that he's, um, you know, watching out of his, his, uh, his window. And, uh, and, and it's just an odd set of circumstances. And, and some of the, you know, computer forensics show that his testimony really doesn't match up with, with, uh, you know, with what he what he said on the stand about uh, he just happened to look out the window and lo and behold, Teresa Hubbock showed up, and he's watching her and watching her, and then decides to go take a shower, and then you know gets done with that shower and then goes off to go deer hunting, and lo and behold, there's only one person in the whole world that supposedly sees him on a 55 mile an hour uh, state highway. You know, he's driving one way and the other person's going the other way, and it's Scott Hubbock, who's his future um, stepfather. Um, so there's just all these bizarre, strange sets of circumstances. And why that's important for listeners to understand is that they basically were able to say, by saying, by claiming that they saw each other on the, on the state, on state highway 147 around three o'clock or so, they basically were able to alibi each other as far as around the time of the murder, even though there's no verification, nobody else, you know, in the world, you know, has come forward and said, oh, yeah, I saw Scott or, you know, I saw Bobby, you know, driving 147. They were able to alibi each other um, by uh, by coming up with that strange, bizarre story. And uh, and as Zellner has come up with uh, on her own by doing research on Bobby Dassey's phone records, his cell phone um, calls bounce off of a different cell phone tower that would put him in an opposite direction, you know, from where he and Scott or Scott and he, you know, claimed that they uh, drove by each other, uh, you know, and waved at each other um, around the time of Teresa's murder. Yeah, and there was something about the location of where the future stepfather ended up buying and living um, as well. And yeah, and I was actually out there this summer uh, when I was uh, 
I, I was up in Wisconsin. I had to take uh, uh, one of my kids up there for uh, for a camp this summer, and uh, and it gave me an opportunity then to spend some time back in Manitowoc County. I was able to spend uh, several hours that day going out to areas that we're talking about here um, to get some additional photographs for the book, but also to kind of re-remind myself, since it had been probably almost a year, about a year since I had last been out at uh, you know Avery Salvage and also the uh, the surrounding terrain out there, um, but it's uh, but yeah that area that Scott Hodich ultimately um, relocated and you know and, and now lives um, it's it's still very close and he was living very close to an area where um, several people have come forward you know on Zellner's behalf to give an affidavit insisting that they absolutely saw Teresa Halbeck's uh, RAV4. Um, hidden off of Highway 147, um, kind of uh, back behind uh, what's known as the um, the East Twin Bridge, um, the old dam property. Um, it's a secluded little area that's just kind of right off the state highway there. And again, it wasn't very far from where Scott Hodge was living at the time. And then it's also not very far from where he lives currently, um, where he, uh, he has a house uh, um, over in that area. And her cell phone pinged as well in that area too, didn't it? Correct, uh, and that was one of the key um, points that Zellner came up with shortly after she took over the case. Was really trying to get a handle on Teresa's uh, consistent uh, whereabouts. Uh, what was her routine and regular regularity as far as with her uh, auto trader assignments and uh, and. From what Zellner was able to uncover, as far as looking at the uh, the uh, the phone uh, uh, the phone records and the cell phone tower pings, um, she was able to determine that that um, in all likelihood Teresa did leave Avery's property uh, around 2:35 that Monday afternoon, which was Halloween, and uh, left Avery Road uh, would have turned uh, turned back onto 147. And, um, you know, put her out somewhere in the general area, you know, of, uh, county, uh, county highway Q. And, um, you know, again, it's a very rural area for the most part, but you have uh, a number of quarries, uh, sand and gravel pits that are out in that same, uh, general area. And, uh, again, that area was the cell phone tower pings that, uh, the Zellner was able to determine that came off of what is known as, uh, the White Law um, Tower, um, that's about 13 to 13.1 miles away, you know, from uh, from Avery Salvage property. Uh, and again, if, if Teresa was really killed and harmed, you know, at the Avery, on Avery Road around 2.30 or so, it, it really kind of defies logic that somehow, you know, within a few minutes of that, uh, you know, the time that she was supposedly killed over there, that her phone is going to be pinging off of a cell tower that's really about 13 miles away from the Avery property. You know, an- another thing, when you were out there, did you have a chance to check out where um, a lot of the, when the dogs were out searching the Avery property, they also searched a lot of the property of the neighbors as well as what belongs to the county. Um, and some of the some of the bones were found in that in those areas um, and that were you able to check out that area yourself 
Yes and no. Yes, from the standpoint of that, I went out to those areas, and I've been out in those areas before. No, from the standpoint that it's really private property as far as it's county-owned property, you know, and, and you know, arguably I would be trespassing if I went out there. It's a little, it's changed a little bit too from back in the day. I mean, it's still a quarry per se, but the thing is the county has some, they've worked something out with the business. There's, there's a bunch of, uh, I'm going off a of memory here now, but I think it's windmill parts um, that are just kind of stored and stacked throughout the property. Whereas back in 05, you know, when the crime happened, it was um, you know just really open, wide open space out there as far as the gravel pit. But nowadays, there's a lot of uh, these uh, these windmill parts that are being stored, uh, um, you know, throughout the property and stuff like that, which would make it difficult to, you know. Um, go to go to and stuff like that i um but along those lines too though i did go out to cuss road you know and that's kind of in that general area over by the redant um sand and gravel pit uh um as well so so again i i did spend some time and i've been out there several times before to kind of get a, a a visual understanding of the area where you know, again, where are the dogs? You know, not this is just by speculation or anybody else's speculation, but these were some of the best job trained dogs in all of the state of Wisconsin, and they were brought into the case to try to find Teresa Hallbuck. Um, they used um, her shoes, uh, so the soles of her shoes, you know, as a scent. And uh, lo and behold, these dogs were, uh, you know, were were, uh, were repeatedly finding. Um, you know, sense of Teresa Halbeck, not by Stephen Avery's, you know, red trailer, but far away, about a half a mile um, away, um, and in some of the other areas that were uh, closer to uh, the Redanta quarry, which again points to the strong possibility here that uh, that Teresa met her end somewhere, you know, far far away from the Stephen Avery trailer or the red garage you know, which is where Mr. Kratz and the Manitowoc County Sheriff's Office, you know, had come up with the theory that that's where the crime had happened. So now a lot of the bones that they found off Avery's um, property, like in the the zones um, where the dogs were looking, uh, a lot of them were human as well, weren't they? Correct. And uh, and that was really downplayed and and really... um, um, just kind of kept hush hush, as far as at the time of the original trial, um, and I think even Dean Strang and Jared Buting really didn't have a, you know, perfect grasp as far as all these, um, all these other bones. Uh, a lot of these things were really labeled in a kind of a sneaky fashion. They were basically labeled by their geographic um, quadrants. Delner was smart enough and intelligent enough to kind of get her staff to really. Uh, um, drill down these locations, and she was able to determine that uh, that not only were the infamous pelvic bones that were found um, out in the in the in the quarry uh, existing, and again the those the pelvic bones at the time of Avery's trial were portrayed as um, you know maybe not even being human, um, and uh, and the and the state really to this day has never definitively uh, had those analyzed to the point of. Uh, um, you know, proving for sure that they are Teresa Hallbucks and all likelihood they are. But again, um, 
you didn't just have those, these pelvic bones as Zellner was able to determine and it comes out in the second making murders uh, series. Um, but, uh, but you had, yeah, two additional piles of bones, human bones that were found in completely different areas of the, uh, of the Mantua County court. So in total here, there were three sets of, uh, of locations inside the Manitowoc County quarry that had you know, human bones, you know, um, that are probably those of Teresa Hallbeck. And that was also described on, on um, the Making a Murderer 2 as an area that the RAV4 could have been driven up into the back of Avery's property. Right. Um, I think that uh, that was uh, portrayed as, uh, again, at that point in time, uh, it would be easy to, you know, kind of drive through some of those, uh, you know, those fields and uh, and uh, what they call conveyor roads out there. They're really kind of primitive, uh, um, you know, terrain and stuff like that. But a vehicle uh, could easily, uh, you know, get through there, um, you know, without much problem stuff. You wouldn't be able to drive a semi-trailer for example, you know, out there, but, uh, but a car or, a, you know, or an SUV, a smaller SUV really wouldn't have that much, uh, trouble, uh, driving through there, Al. So now, now that we're, we're at this place, um, it doesn't look real good for the Brandon Dassey case, uh, being not heard by the Supreme Court. Um, so I'm not sure if that can go much further unless the Steve Avery case does. Um, where do you see the Steve Avery case going now? Well, I think in the next uh, few weeks or so, uh, Kathleen Zellner will be filing her um, post-conviction uh, material, her appeal, with the uh, Wisconsin uh, Court of Appeals. And I think from there it'll be up to them to determine uh, you know, whether or not uh, um, uh, she's presented enough material to uh, to allow for what's commonly called an evidentiary hearing, and um, and if she gets an evidentiary hearing, I, I feel that she's probably going to be in real good shape as far as to be able to blow up and destroy the, you know the prosecution's case against Steve Avery. She's been very successful in a lot of her cases around the country, uh, Al. With uh, once she gets uh, an opportunity to have a bona fide evidentiary hearing, which is kind of like a trial, you know, except it's, you know, not a full-blown, you know, original trial, but it's, but it's like a trial where she could call witnesses and put on evidence. And, uh, you know, again, it, and it's ultimately back in front of the judge to make the determination as far as, uh, um, you know, whether a new trial should be granted or not. Um, and again, if she was successful, there's probably a real good chance that, uh, that uh, the state of Wisconsin would walk away from the case and not retry Avery again, you know, if if she was successful as far as getting a getting a new trial. But uh, um, again, right now it'll be up to the Wisconsin Court of Appeals. Um, I don't want to get too far down the road because, frankly, I'm you know kind of not sure where things would go from there. But uh, but in all likelihood, though, the judge that was handling the case over the last year or so, who really is you know, regarded as kind of a, you know, weak link. She's not really a, a top, uh, you know, top judge, and that's Angela Suckowitz. Um, she's probably completely done with the case at this point in time um, because she already was 
kind of overruled once before this year, um, earlier this year in 2018, when the Court of Appeals had sent the case back to her um, regarding some of this uh, evidence that uh, that was uh, being uh, apparently hidden from uh, Dean Strang and Jerry Buting the first time around. That's the computer uh, computer disk uh, from the Dassey computer, from the Bobby Dassey computer. So, again, if Zellner is successful at the Court of Appeals level, Al, she's going to probably then ask for uh, a different judge to be appointed to the case, probably somebody from the from the Mantua County Courthouse, because there really is no reason for Sheboygan County, the neighboring county, to be in charge of the case anymore. And, uh, you know, and again, um, we'll see if that uh, that materializes. But uh, I would just advise people to pay attention to the case, uh, you know, around Christmas time, because that's when Zellner will make her uh, her filing. And then, uh, and then early uh, over the next couple months too, we'll have some changes in leadership in the state of Wisconsin. There's a new governor coming in, um, and there's also a new attorney general. And uh, the current attorney general was really uh, um, um, played a big role in keeping Brendan Dassey locked up, and he kept doing all those appeals, which you know, for him turned out to be successful. But uh, most people really believed and believed that Brendan Dassey had nothing to do with the crime. You know, and you know, it was seemed like a big injustice that uh, that Brad Schimmel, you know, was continuing to just kind of uh, almost seemed like he was just kind of reading from a script. I mean, he just really seemed like he doesn't really know the case inside and out, but was just kind of playing politics. And uh, you know, but now he's done. He's over and done with. You know, the state of Wisconsin, the voters uh, kicked him out of office. Uh, so uh, there's a new opportunity uh, to see where the case is going to go with uh, with different people in charge of the Wisconsin Attorney General's office right now. So if the case all falls apart and Mr. Avery gets released, where do you think it goes from there? Do you see, do you see uh, lawsuits for Avery? Do you see people um, suing for um, money for, for Avery, for um, wrongful you know, um, imprisonment uh, again like the first yeah. one? Um, do you see all that happening? Yeah, I mean that's 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 generally kind of the script that uh, that plays out in a lot of these cases around the country, um, and that was true with uh, Kathleen Zellner and her uh, um, her handling of the Riot Ferguson case in Columbia, Missouri. It took uh, I mean, she she was able to get him freed uh, a number of years ago, I think about four or five years ago. But uh, it was only, I think, in the past year or so that we're able to reach a multi-million-dollar uh, settlement. Um, so, again, I think that uh, those are all probabilities. Uh, but uh, again, uh, it would be—I uh, just don't see a situation, you know, where Avery's let out of prison. Let's just say, you know, next summer, for example, the summer of nineteen, and that he moves to uh, Michigan, for example you know, and kind of walks away from the case and, uh, you know, doesn't want, you know, or doesn't pursue, you know, any type of uh, um, financial compensation for, you know, the uh, the injustice that would have occurred to him as far as losing the last, uh, you know, 11, 12 years of his life for being, uh, you know, wrongly uh, convicted of this crime, you know, as he's maintained. So, again, um, those things are still... Uh, unsettled and really we'll kind of see where things go from here i mean i'm sh- i'm still sure that uh, uh it'll be interesting to see how the court of appeals handles zellner 
Um, because again, the first judge, this most recent judge that was on the case really didn't even give her the time of day as far as didn't even allow an evidentiary hearing, even though she's put together some very compelling, um, evidence as far as allegations of Brady violations, you know, which again are allegations that are pretty damning and usually are, are responsible for getting a conviction overturned. And that's, uh, Brady violation is when the prosecution or the police um, are suspected of intentionally um, um, concealing you know, evidence that's favorable to the defendant uh, um, at the time of uh, his or her trial. And she's found several examples of that. Yeah, just amazing. Well, uh, it's been an uh, interesting hour. Um, again, really good work. You're a good writer, and this is an excellent book, and uh We'll have it uh, linked on our page as, as well. And um, um, do you have any contact information for people if they w have any information to you? Or uh, what's the best way to get a hold of you? I would say the best pe best way for a lot of people to reach me, uh, again, if they're, uh, if they're on social media, they can usually uh, follow me on just John, J-O-H-N, Farak, F-E-R-A-K, um, on Twitter, um, the other thing is I have uh, my own uh, website, uh, True Crime Author website, and that's just my first and last name, so John, F-E-R-A-K dot com. Those are usually the two best ways uh, for folks to uh, to reach out to me. And again, with uh, with Wrecking Crew, um, um, the book's available um, in all formats. Uh, the uh, there's a paperback version, and uh, there's a Kindle version, and uh, and as of right now, there should be uh, an audio version, an audible version that should be showing up uh, on Amazon any second now or any day now. Um, I've been constantly checking to see because I, I have had a lot of people you know, around the, the, the country, actually around the world, have constantly been asking me, you know, is this coming out in an audiobook yeah, format as well? So uh, People like so that. Those are very popular nowadays. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um so, uh, but uh, but again, just uh, the easiest way to find the book, frankly, is just just um, you know do Google search for uh, Wrecking Crew and John Farrick or Kathleen Zellner and Wrecking Crew and uh, and uh, just find it uh, on Amazon. Well, again, thank you very much, John Farrick's our guest, and Wrecking Crew is what we're talking about: making the mur making a murderer part two. Thank you. Thanks for the opportunity to be on the show again, Al. Have a great day. To find out more about our show, guests, or to listen to past shows from our archive, please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.